Let's just pray for Dave and ourselves as we get ready to hear the word of the Lord. Father, we just thank you for your anointing on all of the uh, preachers and speakers that we are privileged to hear. We pray especially for Dave. We pray healing on him because he's not feeling well. Uh, and that he could just overcome and deliver the words that you've given him for us today. We pray for ourselves that you'd open our ears and our hearts to receive your word and you, Jesus. Amen. Thank you, Sally. Um, I do like to write my introduction on the Sunday morning. And reading it back now, it is not in English. Uh, I must have written in some sort of ill haze. But this morning we're continuing our Christmas series on um, A King is Born, the scripture in Isaiah that we're going to read shortly. Uh, I was given the uh, title that will be given to this king called Eternal Father. And this morning there's some great news for us that we're not only given a king of all of heaven and all of earth to know, we're also given a father in heaven to know. I think at Christmas time this can be a critical issue, isn't it? Because Christmas is traditionally a time when we all come together as families. Uh, for some of us, that's a joyful time, a joyful time of seeing people maybe we haven't seen much. For some of us, that can maybe show a bit of a wear and tear on our family relationships. Maybe some of a strain can come out at Christmas. So it's good to know and good to hear this morning that there's a Father in heaven for whom there is free access and that there doesn't need to be strain or strife in terms of coming to him. So we're going to look at both eternity and fatherhood this morning. I want to take you on a little journey with your thinking. Um, I want to put us in the shoes of the people that first heard Isaiah make this prophecy when he declared that there was going to be an everlasting father. What would they have thought and what does that teach us? And how did Jesus fulfill that prophecy? So let's read these powerful words again in Isaiah. And it says, For us, for to us a child is born, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, and the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with righteousness and justice from that time on forever and ever. <clears throat> so if we want to understand what Isaiah meant by this, we must know what an ancient Jew would have thought when they heard the word father. Many of us will have an idea from our fathers, from our culture, but let's understand what a Jew in that time would have thought. What did they really think? Was God a father to the Jews in the Old Testament? And why does this all really matter? So firstly, let me talk about three kind of ideas about an ancient father. They're the chief uh, authority in a family. They're in charge. That has changed now. But they're the ones who uh, decide who gets to marry who. They're the one who decides where people go. They're the ones who decides what happens ultimately to that family. They decide the rules. Typically, they were the provider. They would provide in terms of earning, sure, but they would also be the one who um, collected all the wealth that even their sons kind of inherited. The, the wealth was um, gathered together as a family. They would also provide physical strength and security and be responsible for kind of who goes to war, who doesn't. And we say that with people like David. In this culture, we also see land is passed down from fathers to sons. And third, thirdly, he's literally a dad. He has a part in making babies. 
He's, um, he gives a physical inheritance, so we all know that today, don't we? We get aspects of our father from our genes. He also gives um, an inheritance and a portion of the land and a nature. So this is the picture that Isaiah's readers are hearing of a father. That is what the culture understood a father to be, an authority, a provider, and a creator. But considering we call him Father God, the Old Testament is surprisingly sparse on references to God as Father. In fact, depending on how you count it, there's less than 15 times that God is called Father in the Old Testament. When he is called Father, he's called the Father of Israel, meaning that he's literally made Israel. Literally, he's the person who started the Israelites' journey. He's called the father of some groups like homeless people, like widows, meaning that he's the person who provides for them, takes care of them. And very rarely, once or twice, he's called the father of David and Solomon. And these are the only individuals in the Old Testament that he calls his sons. And those are prophetic of Jesus. The news this morning is the Jews, the Old Testament people, did not know God as a father beyond the metaphor of him being a creator. Sometimes it's said, even today, and you might not like this, but it's said that all humanity are the children of God. But what I've been reading this past month is that that isn't the biblical idea. The Bible says that God made man in his image, and that's a little bit different. It was, in fact, religions around Judaism at the time of Christ and the time of the Old Testament that had this idea of universal fatherhood of God pagan religions. But the Bible's different. God calls all people of all the earth made in the image of God. But what's the difference between that and a son? Well, I want to start by saying that doesn't diminish diminish love. When he first conceived of humanity, he loved us so much that he decided to give us his image, that we're unique in all of creation And that because of that uniqueness and because of his love for us, he decided at great personal cost to rescue us. But this word is the same word we use about idols, an image of God. So idols were statues that people would worship, statues that looked like pagan gods. These uh, idols were meant to be the human representatives of these, not the human, sorry, the earthly representatives of these gods. They were meant to be these statues that carry the power and the authority of God. And we were designed to be the same. When we were made in God's image, we were designed to be God's representatives on earth. Maybe like a shadow is in the shape of its owner. Maybe like the painting can capture someone's beauty. It's not the literal thing. We're not God, but we are made in his image. I like to think that God is so complex and wonderful and infinite and amazing that the things that were made in his image are as wonderfully complex as you and me. But when we compare that to a son or daughter, we see something much different. A son is alive, not just an image. They have more than just the shape of a father, don't they? They carry the family name. They carry the authority. They carry the nature and they carry an inheritance. Because of a fall, man chose to walk away from God. And that image of God on earth was broken. We're no longer the perfect images of God just on our own. Because of sin, wrongdoing, pain, hurt, all the things leave us falling short of reflecting God's image on earth. Well, why does this matter? Well, 
don't know about you, but I'd much rather be a son or a daughter of a living God than just an image. It's incredible that we're made in the image of God. But the New Testament gives us a new offer. We find that the offer is to become children of God. In the Old Testament, they didn't know that this was coming. They didn't know it was possible. They were, for, they, they were the children of God only as far as God started their tribe. Isaiah promised more than a father, though. He promised an eternal father. So what does the word eternal mean? We're going to get our Bible nerd hats on. Has everyone got one? And we're going to find out what eternity and eternal mean. So I want you to take a second to picture for me eternity. You got a picture in your mind? Lovely. So maybe uh, this is what comes to mind. Maybe you've got a picture of heaven in your head. Maybe you're thinking the eternal kingdom of God. Maybe that's what you're thinking. Maybe uh, this is coming to mind. Maybe you're thinking in terms of infinity. Maybe you're thinking of the vastness of space, of endlessness. Something like a really big picture. Maybe you're thinking of, uh, maybe you're thinking too much about Christmas. <laughs> Lasting for eternity. We need to get our heads around what eternity meant to Isaiah's reader and to Jesus' disciples. When we hear the word eternal or eternity, we might start to think along the lines that God lives in eternity. And whilst that might be true, that isn't the concept that Jews and early Christians had. This idea in our mind is that eternity maybe is this other realm, this heavenly place. And again, that might be true, but it's not what Isaiah was writing about. For us, um, this is really hard to explain, but Time is almost analogous to distance. Time is something we can travel in our minds, isn't it? It's something that we can say God is outside of. It's maybe like a railway or a line to us. Well, that's the modern idea, but in these times, they just didn't have that concept. They had yesterday, today, a month, a year, tomorrow, the next moment. They didn't have this idea, this math around time. So if we were to stand up before them and start preaching about God being outside of time, they'd just be scratching their head. How can God be outside of time? Time isn't something you can be outside of. To the Jews, God can't live in eternity. To God, to Jews, he, uh, to the Hebrews, God lives for eternity. So in this context, as I'm sure you've guessed, Eternal father means a father that will live forever and ever and ever and ever. And often you might hear a preacher say, because there's a twist, that, oh, I've looked at the Hebrew word and this is what it really means. And I've personally often been confused by that, so I've decided to go away and learn how that's done. Uh, and I want to share with you some of my working out while we're here as well. So I've made, um, I made some Christmassy diagrams for us. You see, in every uh, word, in every language, uh, a word represents an idea, doesn't it? So behind every word we speak, every sentence, every thought is a root idea. That's how languages are made. And when we understand where that word comes from, sometimes it helps us understand the broadest idea of what a word is and helps us understand what people are thinking at that time. So using these Christmassy diagrams... Um, we're going to look at a practice one first. The first word of the Bible is in the beginning. This, uh, this word in English on the uh, right-hand tree, we see 
The words that are like it are words like birth, start, founding, morning, day one, zero, zero, one o'clock, the start of time, that kind of thing. It used to mean literally to open or to start, but now we have this idea of time. And we can see that the root idea, the seed that grew the tree that ended up with beginning is the idea of time and the start of it. To the Hebrews, they have this word reshith. And in some time, that is accurately translated at the start of the Bible as beginning. But in other instances in the Bible, it's translated as first or chief or best. And so you can see already there's a slight difference between the way they understood the ideas of beginnings. And this word reshif is related to this word resh, which means head. So to Hebrews, they weren't thinking about a time that goes on and here's the beginning of it. They were thinking about the first thing, a head. So that's our practice run. I hope you're getting the concept, because now we're going to look at a big boy, eternity. So in the English here, we have eternity. It means perpetual, forever, infinite, everlasting, unending, ceaseless, timeless. We all get those. And again, you have this root idea about time. And either you believe it's an absence of time, because God's outside of time, or you believe it's an unending time. It's just a time, a train track that goes on forever and ever and ever. But this Hebrew word, olam, or ad, or a couple of others, have some similar ideas. Always, continual, eternal, we get those. Then it goes a bit weird. Ages, ancient, ancient times, days of old. What is going on here? Well, the people I read told me that the root of this word, the idea in the back of the head of an Israelite or a Hebrew, was the word lifetime. In a sense, when we say something like, I'm going to love you forever, we mean, I'll love you till I die, don't you? So, the idea behind the Hebrew word forever is as long as it lasts. So, strangely, although lots of times in the Bible, forever, because it's attached to the life of God, it means forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. There's some strange instances where forever doesn't mean forever. Here's a couple of examples There's one that's talking about um, rules for slaves in the Old Testament. And it's saying that if after the contract, the slave wants to stay with that family, perhaps because they want to marry into it, they've uh, got to do this weird ritual about being nailed to a door, and then they're the slave forever. Do any of you want to stand and say that that means that that person is a slave into the kingdom of eternity? No, it's not biblical, is it? And more importantly for us, this second scripture... It talks about the priesthood of Aaron, which is from the law of Moses. The law of Moses was rules set by God, which are an agreement or a covenant between God and man that said, if you do these things, you will get to be close to me. I will be your God and you will be my people. The deal was, if you wanted to be close to God and you wanted to be restored to God's image, then you had to follow the rules, follow these laws. And one of these laws was that Aaron... Uh, Moses' brothers' descendants would be the priests forever. It says forever. But we all know, or you may know, that Jesus replaced Aaron as our high priest. And that Aaron's descendants are no longer the priests for us. So this forever lasted as long as the people kept the covenant. Because the covenant was not forever. So if we talk about forever in a Hebrew concept about an agreement, we're thinking about contract length, for those that you know contracts. 
So this agreement will last forever and ever and ever as long as you keep it. Now what do we know from the Bible? We know that the Jews failed, that we failed to keep this agreement forever and ever. They expected this agreement to last forever. But by the time of Jeremiah, they were beginning to see the writing on the wall. And Jeremiah prophesied, Behold, the days are coming. I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel, with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant made with the fathers in the land of Egypt, the covenant they break, but I will make a new covenant and write my laws on their hearts. I paraphrase that, sorry. So this was the situation that Jesus was born into. We had an agreement with God that was being broken day in, day out, that wasn't making up for the shortfalls of man. We had a, we had a seemingly perpetual uh, broken agreement and no chance of being restored to God. But now Jesus was born to be the forever king. And he came to make a new agreement, a new covenant with people so that we could have an eternal father. In a town in Bethlehem, Jesus is born and declared to be a king forever. And when he grows up, he starts to say some really weird things to Jews, things that they hadn't really thought of. And must have, it must have just sounded a bit weird, to be honest, because he started to call God Father. And the New Testament word count in terms of Father and God explodes when it comes to Jesus. Jesus didn't just use this word for father, this word ab, this word that's like my father. He used this word abba. Now abba, sometimes you've heard it preached that this was a word like daddy. In the Old Testament times, babies, uh, because the word was ab for father, babies might say abba. And it was this kind of close, intimate, cute little term. But by New Testament times, Abba had become a word used by adults as well. So we're not talking about an immature word. Jesus isn't walking around calling God Daddy because Jews at the time were calling their dads Abba. And it was a respectful but still intimate and adult term. So even when the Old Testament called God Father, it never called him Abba and it never spoke in those intimate terms. The Jews at the time would have been mind-blown by our Father our Abba, who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Those are two opposite things. Hallowed be your name, God in heaven above, far from me, and he's an Abba, like my dad, close to me. That's impossible. When Jesus died, he dealt with many issues on the cross. And one of those issues was the law given by Moses that was always being broken. People couldn't live up to the holiness of God. And when Jesus paid the price for that agreement, he paid for the punishment of breaking that one. But more so, he made this new covenant, a new agreement that would make us right with God, one that would be eternal. The old covenants forever lasted as long as people kept it. We've talked about that. But this new covenant wasn't based on how well people kept the agreement. This new covenant was based on the lifetime of Jesus Christ, who is eternal. Jesus, who paid the price and died and rose again and lives forever. This deal was paid for by the eternal blood of Jesus, by the life of Jesus, because the life is in the blood, so that it can never end. So our security is secure. It's never going to end. It cannot be rep replaced or broken. There is going to be no new New Testament. This 
covenant will last forever. But what about us? Because this agreement says that through faith in Christ, we can have eternal life as well. And I guess that might have sounded a bit weird to Jews as well, because you don't see so much of that in the Old Testament. Why can we have eternal life? And I think Paul hits some of the nail on the head when he says, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives within me. Our eternity, our life, is no longer based on my limited lifetime. It's based on Christ's life that is eternal and everlasting and forever. But there's more to this covenant. There's more reason why we get access to eternal life. And it brings us back to this eternal father. In this new covenant, we have access to more than a king, but a father. When we choose to follow Christ and believe in him, we are transformed. And and it is his life that lives in us and not our own. Paul writes in Corinthians that if if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. But what is this new creation? We've talked a bit about what words mean. What's the best word to describe this new creation? Well, it's children of God, isn't it? Earlier we discussed the differences, perhaps, between an image of God and a child of God. Well, in Christ we get to be both. Now we are restored as the image of God because of Christ's death and resurrection for us. But no longer individually, we are now part of a church, the body of Christ, that is revealed on earth and in the perfect image of him. And what do we get to ourselves? We each get to be called a child of God, not just an image. We're alive, we're inheritors of the nature of a father. We're intimate, we're close, we're welcome, and we carry the father's authorities. We're not just shadows. We see in the giving of the Holy Spirit that we get the nature of God ourselves. And we see day to day that he is making us more and more like him. More and more like sons. And crucially, we get our inheritance from our Father. That will never perish or grow old. It is eternal life that starts now. We don't just call God our Father or distant God. We call him Abba Father. A close an intimate father that we have access to. The fact that we are children is a wonderful guarantee, not just for the future forever, in eternity, whatever that looks like, but for our lives now. Uh, Let me ask, is anyone a parent in the room? Hands... Okay, and is anyone a child in a room? So you're going to relate to this, well done. <laughs> Can our children stop being our children? No. What amount of wrongdoing, Anne, would stop your children from being your children? None. And the reverse is true as well. Sally, is your most successful child, whichever one you choose, the one with maybe doing best in school or that you, you think of as the best. Are they more a child of yours than any of the others? No. And this is the wonderful reality as, as we inherit the childhood of God. No amount of bad deeds, sins of wrongdoing will change that identity as sons of God. You can always return again to your father. 
And equally, no amount of greatness can improve your standing. You could preach on every single street, convert every person in the world, and you are no more a child of God than that first moment when you accepted Jesus Christ into your heart. But if we're children, how do we respond to that fatherhood? Sometimes when there's an important thing to say, it's good to find someone who said it better than yourself. So in 1858, Spurgeon spoke in a preach, and he said, We must be reconciled that our being sons involves the duty of obedience to God. When I say my father, it is not for me to rise up and go in rebellion against his wishes. If he be a father, let me note his commands and let me reverently obey. If he has said, do this, let me do it, not because I dread him, but because I love him. If he forbids me to do anything, let me avoid it. For the child of God knows his good works do not make him acceptable to God. For he was acceptable to God by Jesus Christ long before he had any good words. How else do we respond? Well, Paul writes in Romans, we have received a spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if a child then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. The spirit of adoption we have now is how we cry out to our Father in heaven. When my son is in trouble or when he's happy, if he's got a problem in the middle of an night or he wants to show me a drawing, do we imagine that maybe he thinks about arranging a face-to-face at some point? Does he think about the day of the week that he might get to see his dad and then go to him and talk to him? Does he go away and do some good things that might convince me to listen to him as my son? Oh, no. He just shouts, Daddy! And usually... That's all I need to pay attention. Maybe a little bit of repeating, but that's because I'm imperfect. Whereas our God in heaven is perfect. And in times of uncertain leadership, with his election looming, with lies in the media, maybe experts don't seem like experts anymore, and truth seems to be decided by whoever has the most power in this situation. Isn't it a comfort that Isaiah declared that the king of the earth, that he planned for us, would be our father, And that we'd be sons and daughters of that God and not just subjects. That we could be people who just cry out, Father! And he'll hear us. That's the promise of scripture. Earlier, I spent some time discussing what words meant and there's a purpose. So we remember we had those Christmas trees with those root ideas. Well, here's another one for you. We all have an idea of what a father is. Some of us have been taught what a father is by our earthly fathers. Some of us have been inspired by our culture. Some maybe by a spiritual father or an influential character in our life. So when God comes to us and says, I am your father, that is going to be coloured by your view of what a father is, surely. In your heart, what is the root idea of fatherhood? And has it missed the mark? Is God saying, I'm your father, and you're going, well, I'm not sure what that is, or, or what I learned about dads wasn't that great. I think often we can miss out on something of Christ 
Because instead of living as sons and daughters of a living God, we live just like the images, just like these reflections, just like these shadows, not living the fullness. There's a special relationship between a child and his parents. I can think of nothing bigger that can wound a child than a parent abandoning them. Or even those little times we were let down by our parents. Let's not get me started. Can wound us, can't they? Their teachers change every year. Trusted mentors might change. Their friends come and go as they grow up. But the wound of a parent letting them down is hard to overcome. It's the primary relationship that we learn from. And so when God says he's our father, surely that's going to colour our view, isn't it? Even when we have good parents, perhaps we limit God to the limits of the greatness of our parents as well as their failings. For just a second, I think it would be good to reflect on our biological fathers and mothers, maybe some of our spiritual fathers or the people who were fathers to people around you, people you learn fatherhood from. I think that our experience of God is enriched by those good examples, but it's twisted because of the bad examples. And this morning, my hope is for us as we wrap up that you learn that you have a Father in heaven who loves you with an unending, inescapable love that desires you to know him as a Father. And that if you accept Jesus into your heart, you can have a heavenly Father who is unending and perfect. If you haven't met that kind of Father before, we pray you get chance this morning. We can learn from God, we can learn from a word, we can learn from one another what a great and eternal father is. So I wanted to wrap up tonight um, by praying a prayer that I've written and then I'll hand back to Phil. Um, I want to spend a moment and ask our eternal father to forgive us maybe where we've got that picture of the dad wrong and teach us what it means to be his children and follow after him. Shall we pray? Lord, if this morning any of us have not yet received that spirit of adoption, not yet known you as Father, I pray you would show us. Let us place our faith in you, Jesus, and not in our ability to get it right with God. Let us accept the work you did on the cross, and let us know you as God our Father. For those of us that know you, our Abba Father, forgive us for painting you, our Heavenly Father, with the brush of our Heavenly Fathers. Where our fathers have been faithful and loving, we thank you. But forgive us if we have limited your faithfulness to theirs. Where our fathers have been too harsh, forgive us for seeing you in that light. Where our fathers have been absent, forgive us for fearing you will be the same and far away. Where our fathers have lacked compassion, forgive us for missing your compassion. And wherever our fathers have been unsure or weak or failing, Lord, help us to forgive them and forgive us for when we have not found you to be an unfailing and an unfailing reserve of surety and strength. Lord, we pray, teach us what it means to be your children. Teach us what it means that you are our father. Amen.